This podcast is part of the Tremula Network, adventure and outdoor podcasts off the beaten track. To find out more, head to tremula.network or find us on socials. Seize Your Adventure is part of the Tremula Network, adventure and outdoor podcasts off the beaten track. I had this one morning paddle I would do right on my drive to work. And while I was doing the paddle on my way in, I'd look towards work and I'd be like, oh man, it'd be nice to just like paddle on over to the office now. So that became the idea. Like I knew it wasn't a practical route of transportation. 17 miles on a paddleboard can't be done in any time for a workday, but it just kind of naturally fit into my head. Oh, you live 17 miles from the office. You would love if you could paddle to the office and while you couldn't do that every day maybe you can do that as an awareness day. Hello adventurers I am Fran Trauskis and you are listening to Seize Your Adventure. In this episode I am expanding our map of adventure because for the first time we're heading out to sea. It slightly surprised me to realise that I haven't had any sea-based adventurers on the podcast yet The ocean has often offered adventure in the traditional sense, the swashbuckling, finding new lands kind of adventure. But whilst the heyday of adventure on the high seas is over, in today's conversation we talk about how the power and unpredictability of the ocean can still offer adventure of the everyday kind. My guest today is Jared Muscat. And for Jared, surfing has been a passion, an obsession, and in his own words, an addiction since he was a teenager. Surfing was part of what led Jared to his current job, working for the outdoor clothing company Patagonia. And it was on the Patagonia blog that I first read some of Jared's story about his epilepsy diagnosis and a paddleboarding challenge he did to raise awareness for the condition. I immediately went over to Instagram to follow him and I learned that he was actually preparing to have brain surgery to stop his seizures. Now, I really wasn't certain about the etiquette of contacting someone you don't know just before they're about to have brain surgery. But when Jared followed the seizure adventure account back, I sent him this message. Thank you so much for following us. Your life is the epitome of what I'm trying to highlight with seizure adventure. And Patagonia is such an iconic brand. Would you be interested in talking to me more? I'd love to have an interview or Q&A. Completely understand if I don't hear a response for a while best of luck with the surgery. So this was only a couple of weeks after the Seizure Adventure website went live and you may notice I said thank you for following us. I really wanted to look bigger and more impressive than I was and I wasn't expecting a response. But Jared got back to me straight away in typical surfer fashion telling me he'd be stoked to be part of it and offering to give me a call on Friday. So true to his word, we had a chat that Friday and I ended up putting his blog post on the Seizure Adventure website. But we never managed to do an interview until now. So here it is, my chat with Jared Muscat. 
I came across you, Jared, because you are one of the few people that had written about epilepsy in adventure sports before I actually started Seizure Adventure. So one of the places that I saw one of your blogs was actually on the Patagonia website. Now, you work for Patagonia, don't you? So can you tell us a little bit about how how you started working there and how you, you pitched the story to them? I grew up with surfing as my passion. Um, since the time I was nine years old, surfing became the one thing I wanted to do each and every day. And as soon as I got my license, that passion grew to another level and surfing became basically all I did each and every day aside from doing well at school so that I could get go to a college um, that was right next to the ocean. That, that was what I studied and that's what I worked for. And then after graduating from college, I started working surf industry and kind of gradually found myself um, at Patagonia. And at Patagonia is where I really started to take a true uh, self-evaluation at the way I approached my battle with epilepsy. I had a couple major um, seizures, one that put me into the hospital for three days or so during my first year of working there. And the, my coworkers rallied around me with, with support and emotional support, bringing meals or just giving me rides to and from the office if I felt wrong. And it kind of kept um, empowering me to talk louder about the issue. I hadn't really talked about it publicly before. And Working in social media, one day I was out on my morning paddle and Facebook Live had just launched. And I thought to myself, I work at the right company to say that, hey, let me uh, take the day to help raise awareness and test out some product. And my boss immediately gave a yes. And yeah, that, that was that. And it kind of kept, kept just growing organically from there. Yeah, that is absolutely fabulous. So they, it sounds like they were behind you right from the start. You, you didn't have any concerns about telling, telling your employers that you have epilepsy. Yeah, I um I ran in, had an incident with my first professional job. On, I remember driving in on my first day and going back and forth on whether or not to tell them I had epilepsy, and I and I made the decision not to tell them about the epilepsy. And about three or so weeks later, I had a seizure in the office, and all of a sudden I was surrounded by the EMT, and the EMT was trying to pull me into the hospital. And it, after you get hit by a seizure, you don't really speak too well for a couple mm. minutes. And, took me quite a while to be able to get them to back off. And uh, my friend who was the one who called EMT, he didn't know I had epilepsy. And, and I look back on it and that cost me a couple bucks to pay for an ambulance ride that I never took. And it caused me a lot of embarrassment in a certain way of just babbling in front of coworkers while trying to explain things. And um, that was the instance that told me you need to make sure everyone around you knows um, because it has a great effect on your health and might even be your wallet. But at the end of the day, if they don't know, you can't expect them to help. And so that was the learning lesson. My next job, um, HR didn't really like that I had epilepsy. I would try to say, um, I would try to take work days from home if I ever felt like I might have a seizure. And they forced me to sign an FMLA paper so that they wouldn't pay me for days that I thought I might have a seizure. And that didn't deter me from thinking that Everyone around me who's going to be with me for eight to nine hours of every day should know that they're next to someone who might go through quite a little bit of a 
seizure, but doesn't need to go to the hospital for that seizure and um, maybe try and make me comfortable and not let everybody see what happens. And so that's how I took it to Patagonia. And from day one, I was embraced and people accepted me and um, reached out and support and reached out to find help for their friends and loved ones. Yeah, I think that that is um, it, it's something that I hear quite a lot and it's something that resonates with me being able to put your trust in people that you tell them you have this condition and trusting them to, to be able to help you essentially. And I think that for myself, and it sounds like you, you might have found it with the, the Patagonia crew as well, because you are putting your trust in people a lot when you're doing adventure sports and when you're doing that kind of thing quite a lot of the people within the adventure community seem very accepting of it when I tell them a lot more so than in in regular jobs and that kind of thing I don't know if that's something which you have come across yourself if that's if that's the way that you feel that's a good I hadn't I hadn't thought of it from that perspective but I guess that makes a lot of sense we're a culture of happy and proud to admit we're a culture of um, individuals. And while we are a family business, we're a bunch of people who's, for the most part, first priority is getting outside and doing our personal favorite passions. And so there's definitely a certain respect that is embedded into our community. And I would say in general, you know, any other surfer or outdoor enthusiast I've met with epilepsy ha- has a pretty similar story to tell in terms of who they've had the easiest communication with and who they've had the toughest communication with. Yeah. Yeah. I was recently um, connected with a fellow surfer with epilepsy and he works as a, as a substitute teacher. And he recently had a seizure after the work day was done. He had a seizure and his employer put him on leave and then decided to fire him because of his epilepsy. And so I think that's a perfect example of the industry and the people that you're around being able to correctly assess and understand the nature of the disease and its personal effect on you. Mm. Yeah, it's um, it's something that, yeah, it's it's just really difficult that one because it, it seems like it's such pot luck in terms of your employers and and who you put your trust in sometimes in that side because there, there's quite a few people that are in teaching jobs that I've heard exactly the same thing and yet these are people who are potentially coming across kids with epilepsy so it's always a bit of a, yeah. a strange uh, one for me um, it always surprises me the way people like to put they think there's a bubble wrap that you can put around epilepsy mm. there's, there's nothing it's not simple yeah um, let's talk about the paddleboarding challenge that you did. You wrote a blog for, um, it was on the Patagonia blog initially, and then we put it on the Seizure Adventure website. And it was about one of your paddleboarding challenges. You went from home to work and you were doing this to, to raise awareness and raise funds for an epilepsy charity. Can you tell us first off why you decided to do that particular route and how far the route was in the end. I don't really have that good of a story for that. I wish I, I wish I did. <laughs> I, I pretty often say this whenever I'm talking to people is like surfers, they're pretty dumb. They're pretty basic people. And like the whole idea came to me. I was in the middle of, I had a morning paddle that I do before work. I live in Santa Barbara and um, 
in Santa Barbara starting in spring, the swells basically don't make it in there. Um, no summer swells make it out through the, from the South because of the, the great channel islands. Um, and what that does is it basically like, if you want to stay in the ocean, you need to paddle. And so that I got into paddling because I needed my time in the ocean. And yeah, I had this one morning paddle I would do right on my drive to work. And while I was doing the paddle on my way in, I'd look towards work and I'd be like, ah, oh, man, it'd be nice to just like not get in my car and get to the office just paddle on over to the office now so that became the idea like I knew it wasn't a practical route of transportation 17 miles on a paddleboard can't be done in any time for a work day but <laughs> I that was it just kind of naturally fit into my head oh you live 17 miles from the office you would love if you could paddle to the office and while you couldn't do that every day maybe you can do that as an awareness day and so that that's what what spawned it. There wasn't anything particular about oh, seventeen miles. My buddy and I run. We do eight mile paddles almost every other day. Mm. So seventeen wasn't a big number. That just happened to be the number. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a perfect one. I mean, I ended up doing the Camino because I typed in hikes in Europe. So I think it's a slightly better story than mine. <laughs> Hello there, my name is Cathy Kamleitner and I'm here to tell you about my podcast, Wild for Scotland. If you enjoy travelling, spending time outside, learning about nature or simply relaxing to a good story, check out Wild for Scotland and join me for inspiring journeys from the cobbled streets of Edinburgh to the sandy beaches of the Western Isles. We go on scenic road trips up and down the country, hop from island to island, immerse ourselves in Scottish history, culture and landscapes, and meet passionate locals who love sharing their own little corners of Scotland. Think of it like story time for adults that inspires you to head out and learn about the world around you. So join me on the Wild for Scotland podcast. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Morning, folks. Epileptic opportunity and coming down. So we head out. Hi, everybody. Are you ready to paddle? No dolphins yet, Kim. I want to talk a little bit about epileptic opportunity. So this is something which you mention in your stories, but can you go into a little bit of detail about where that phrase came from initially? Yeah, so I I was on my way to college um, when I had my first seizure. I was on my way to my freshman orientation, and uh, the seizure caused caused quite a bit of commotion. I got taken into the neurologist, and they pretty much diagnosed me right off the bat. And as the doctor, um, I don't remember her name, 
I don't even know if my picture of her is the correct picture of who she is. I might just be a made up memory, but she was asking me about, you know, my daily routines and all those things, trying to get me prepared for the change that was ahead. Uh, she asked me very specifically, she's like, do you, do you physically exercise often? It's important for someone with epilepsy to be in good shape. And I very proudly turned over to her and I was like, yeah, I exercise daily. I surf almost three times a day. Yeah. And I do yoga. You know, I kind of gave her my little surfer spiel and she just stops me mid sentence and goes, yeah, well, you're going to have to cut that out because you could die if you die out in the ocean, if you have a seizure. Hmm. I said minutes ago, you told me that I need to be stress-free. If you want me anywhere near stress-free, you're not going to, I can't say goodbye to the ocean. She didn't fight me on it too hard, but she didn't accept that answer. And she, so she just continued and goes, and alcohol. I know you're about to start your college life and it's time to start drinking with your friends, but I, I strongly advise against any alcohol. And I said, that is actually perfect. We agree. <laughs> I'll use that excuse at the party. So I wake up early the next morning and get to the surf before all my buddies, well, all my buddies are hung over. And so that was kind of it right off the bat. I turned it into like, all right, this disease might suck but there's certain little nuances of what I can do and how I'll live that not others will necessarily get the same access or perspective of and yeah I just kind of kept growing from there and every time I'd have a seizure and get forced to stay home for the day and get my mind back in order it sucked I haven't had a seizure for over two years and I definitely hope I never have one again, but there was also some certain little bit of a blue sky to sitting back for the day, stop in and appreciate the fact that other than that, my body is in good health and my life's a pretty good. <laughs> I live a very fortunate life living in California on the coast at a company I'm proud to be a part of. And I've got a great wife and, yeah, so I forced myself to make sure that I didn't view epilepsy with negativity and I found ways to turn it into opportunity. Yeah, I love that. I think um, your your way of using it as an excuse to look after yourself, essentially. So you're staying stress-free, sorry, you're staying stress-free. You are not drinking alcohol. You're using it as an excuse to, to kind of like go home from parties if you need to and that kind of thing. I think it's a, a great way to approach it rather than seeing seeing everything that is bad about it, seeing those opportunities as well, like you say. Yeah. So you mentioned there that you haven't had seizures for two years now and you had difficulty getting towards that stage and you actually went into have brain surgery two years ago what I would like to talk about would be after the brain surgery when you weren't able to swim for a while afterwards so after you had the brain surgery how long was it that you were out of the water whilst you were healing they demanded three months at minimum and I um asked why and they said the only true reason that the first month is to let my brain try and figure itself out and then the last two months or so that that nice gigantic scar they put into my head could thoroughly heal and there would be absolutely no opportunity to infect it or anything like that by about a month and a half in I was felt my scar was pretty pretty good and tried multiple times to get the approval 
but didn't get it and decided it was absolutely not worth battling them on that because of the long-term outcome. Sacrificing three months of waves for the rest of my life, seizure-free, and not worrying about any possible (laughs) blasting infection from the not very clean ocean that we Mm -hmm. have here in California. Um, It was worth it. It was was trying. The first two weeks after this surgery were some of the most difficult in my life and that I was drugged up and then some and working hard to get off the drugs as fast as possible while not realizing the amount of swelling and pain that those drugs were battling. And yeah, I, you know, I remember not being able to really control my temper too easily or even understand what was going on. It, it hurt to, I couldn't lay down or even rest my body over to the, towards the left side because mm. that's what they did the surgery on the left side and then all the blood would run over there and then all of a sudden my head would feel like it was 25 pounds on mm. just above my left eye and so that was really tough and I remember that was a that was a period of time where I really the only people that could understand and really help me figure out the right approach were other fellow epilepsy warriors who'd been through surgery who I reached out to and, and asked what the heck does it make sense that I'm thinking and feeling what I'm feeling and they said, yeah, they did it. And I saw them and they're, they're all well off. So I, I trusted them. But yeah, you know, like by around two months post-surgery, my scar looked all, or that those 52 staples were well removed and you couldn't see any scabs and the swelling was gone. And I'm not good at not surfing. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't surfed in two and a half days and people probably can notice by the tone of my voice. So... <laughs> Yeah, it took time. But then what I'll always remember really is that like, I remember the first time back in the ocean is one of the best surfs I ever had in my life. And not because the waves were all that good, or I surfed well or anything, just the the rush of emotion that hit me when I ducked over under the wave and got to feel water surround my head for the first time in three so months. And just look out at the ocean and see and feel that energy again, energy I'd not forgotten, but definitely didn't get to feel. And there's, you know, you can watch your, I watch so many freaking videos of myself and photos of myself and (laughs) like everything to try and reinsert myself into the ocean in my head. And none of that was going to do it. I needed the ocean. As soon as I got back, I felt complete. And I'll never say that the chapter is over because, you know, who knows tomorrow I could have a seizure a month from now I could have a seizure, but that felt like that moment of going under the water felt like the final nail in the project of, of saying goodbye to the surgery and continuing a new life. Yeah. Um, I suppose that what I would, what I would ask you to say is if people are, people are at the stage where they're thinking about anything like brain surgery, would there be anything that you could say to them? Would there be anything that you would, uh, I suppose not advise but anything that you you can give from your own personal experience of that period coming up towards your surgery and making that decision i remember two phases really of the path to brain surgery i remember the day i found out i was going towards possible brain surgery they don't they didn't say we're doing it for sure they said hey it looks like you're a good candidate for surgery but we need to do a lot of tests to figure out exactly where in the brain we're going to do the work so we can make sure to let your brain keep functioning at a decent level. I'm not a high level guy. I'm a decent level. So I remember, and during that 
those like first that first week or so after the idea that surgery may be in the future that I had a lot of anxiety, not about, Oh my God, someone's going to work in my brain, but it was more of, are they going to do the work in my brain? Can they do the work in my brain? Is there the opportunity? Like, is that real? Can we actually get my brain fixed? And I was just so nervous and anxious to go through the tests. I remember scheduling tests and, you know, it's so hard to all the different machines they have and all that stuff. It was like, trying to get a test done every two weeks was, was difficult to try and make the process fast. And I remember just trying to speed it up. And then about seven tests later, they decided, yes, they're going to do the surgery. And it was time to just schedule out the surgery. And that was based on a lot of other, you know, timelines. And so then all of a sudden I got to a point where it was two months out. And so you're having surgery in two months. We know exactly what we're going to do. And we're excited to do it, but we have to wait two months. And I remember just, those were the, longest two months ever I like each day felt like a month each week felt like two months I was so excited and ready I think any fears I had had been kicked out by 10 days in a coma and hundreds of seizures all I wanted was to just see what the next step could be and I don't say that necessarily as whoa bravado dude it's more like dumb bravado my idea of how to handle it was to just say let's go that's what I did. And I know it works for me. I know it doesn't work for everyone. They also, I mean, they took my amygdala out. So, you know, my fear processing isn't that solid. Yeah, this is something I'm really interested in. It's, um, I, I think you've told me it before that you had that section removed. And this is something I really want people to look into. I'm going to try and get some kind of neurologist and epileptologist to look into this in terms of the amygdala and folks like us that are kind of into the adventure sports on that side because I know that there's been stuff done looking at that in just the adventure sports I'd love to see if there is a relationship between the kind of like epilepsy side and that kind of thing but that's a really good idea yeah I I don't know obviously I have absolutely no skills in that area I'm just intrigued so (laughs) I'm hoping one day I'll get someone else intrigued in it To me, when I look back on it all and I remember how my brain used to function, it's so easy to track down how, like, oh, yeah, of course that epilepsy was located in the amygdala that some days was, like, so scared about just about anything. But I remember the first time I surfed big waves and paddling out, and I remember these chills on my back. I remember popping up and laughing. Mm -hmm. Like, that was quite the change in emotional fear that just went down. And nowadays, I just... Like, I'm a dad, so I'm, I have, like, a, a dad brain amygdala that does slow me down. Yes. <laughs> it's a dang good thing I still had my amygdala before I had my son. Otherwise, who knows? <laughs> yes, yeah. So you had the these couple of months where you weren't surfing after your surgery. Was there anything that you you did do to keep active or that did help you during that time whilst you... You, you can do your sport in particular? Yeah, um, yoga. I've been doing yoga since I was a teenager. I broke my back when I was 16, and part of the rehab was yoga, and I've been avid about it ever since. And I got to the point of training to become a yoga instructor, but only veered away from that because I wouldn't ever spend enough time being a yoga instructor to make money on it. I'd rather surf. 
I just, you know, put, put all my, my focus and effort into my yoga. And I remember that was, that was another benefit of by the time I was back, I was more flexible than I ever have been in my life and probably ever will be now that I don't get to do the same amount of yoga with my <laughs> with dad duties. But, um, yeah, I do it before work, during work and after work. It just, it's subbed in for my surf sessions. That's how I, how I did it. Yeah, that's cool. You mean you haven't tried the baby yoga? No, well, we do, we do do it. We do do it. We just, he's, he, he doesn't have the patience to do much longer than a five minute. Sounds like me. <laughs> what does adventure mean to you? How do you describe adventure? Adventure is putting yourself in a position of the unknown and not the unknown in an overarching or a high level adventure is putting yourself in an area that is unknown to you. I consider just about every single surf and adventure, how extreme of an adventure depends on the mood and depends on what the ocean provides. But each time you paddle out, you're going to experience something different than the last time you paddled out. Mm. And I think that's why surfing will forever have me addicted. Um, I never paddled out and left the ocean having fulfilled the expectations I, I put out walking out there. I might see perfect waves and expect to get the best barrels of the day. And I might come in and I got the worst waves of the day. And I might be angry right now, but five minutes after that anger subsides, it'll have triggered into, all right, next time, where am I going to go? Let's go. I'll go find something else. Like it doesn't, it doesn't get monotonous in any way for me. I know everyone's different. And I know I've heard my climbing friends talk about how they'll be going up the same pitch for the 15th climb and they'll see a new hold and they get excited to take that or my mountain bike friends talking about the difference of a morning ride versus an evening ride and all that stuff and so you know to me adventure it's just being somewhere that that you haven't been before and there's no way to truly replicate the ocean and there's no way to replicate any single moment of the day so place yourself where you want how extreme you want Oh, yeah, I totally hear you on that. I think um, that that last point in particular, however extreme you want, is uh, a good way of doing it. As you know, I'm not a surfer. I am terrified of doing it. I'm not terrified. That's a lie. I actually did a uh, free diving taster session a couple of weeks ago. Uh, It was really good. I was so nervous going into it because I am not good in water. Like I literally can't put my head under the water usually. And they were so good with me and they just like talked me through it. And by the end of it, I actually came out of the session having been in the water for an hour going, wow, I am so relaxed, (laughs) which never happens when I'm in water. (laughs) Everyone has their own different views i'm all for it yeah absolutely when you started telling your your own story and writing your own story was that something that helped you through your diagnosis and through your your kind of difficult periods i think so i look back on it and i wonder why i thought to share it with anyone it all seemed very personal like diary entries for me i I used to, especially back in college, I wrote poems and short stories all the time. And, you know, once I became a professional, keeping that habit up kind of said goodbye. But yeah, each one of those came, you know, right after a big moment, whether it be a big seizure seizure battle or 
the decision to try and find a new doctor. Um, yeah, there were just self-reflection moments. And I haven't really written much since because I haven't done too, too much self-reflection since. Not that I don't need it, but I just haven't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I want to, and I've structured out writing a book about the whole um, journey. We'll see if my, uh, my hands are ever going to find that energy. <laughs> I hear you on that one. I have so many half-finished projects. It's ridiculous. Yeah. But, um, I'd like to read your book if um, a when, when it comes out. I'll make it a when. I'll hold you to account on it. <laughs> That'll get me moving. So I only had about 40 minutes to speak to Jared whilst he was on his lunch break. So there were things that we just didn't manage to get into in this conversation. But if you want to learn more about his story, go ahead and follow him on Instagram. He's at Jared Muscat. And Jared knows some fantastic photographers as well. So his Instagram feed is pretty awesome. You can still read his story on the Seizure Adventure blog as well. If you liked this episode, please share it with someone you think would like it. Rate it and review it if you haven't already. I want these chats to reach as many people as possible, which is why the podcast is, of course, free to everyone. But the podcast actually costs me money to make and there are more hours that I put into it than I can count. So if you are in a position where you can support me financially, you can actually help me to produce the show by becoming a patron. If you head to patreon.com forward slash seizure adventure, you can become an adventure ally for $3 a month. And there are various levels of support available on Patreon. And the highest is a producer level, which is $250 a month and basically covers the costs for one episode. The snippet of music in today's episode came from Kev Rowe on SoundCloud. That's under a Creative Commons license. And for the last part of this episode, I am, of course, going to hand back to Jared. When we were talking, we went off on a bit of a tangent about our families and support crew. And because the connection was pretty bad and we were talking over each other and getting a bit animated, the audio for that wasn't actually very usable, unfortunately. So I asked Jared to send me a little something to just fill in some of the gaps. But what he sent me was just so nice and honest that I thought I'd give it to you here unedited. So enjoy this slightly longer post-credits than usual. And until next time, safe adventures, everyone. A lot of parents reach out to me talking about my story as an inspiration to their child or an inspiration to them and how they're going about their approach for being a parent to a child with epilepsy. And I'm always honored and flattered to hear such kind words. And it means a lot to me, but I usually the first thing I do is... I, I toss out the idea of, hey, have your child reach out to me. And and instead of trying to coach your child or, or lead your child on the on the battle with epilepsy, ask your child for what, what their plan might be, how, how they want to go to the doctor or what they want to ask the doctor. Put that child as, as the leader. 
I was diagnosed with epilepsy at the age of 17 on the way to my freshman year in college. And up until that point, I'd been the, the goody two-shoes son. I had straight A's. I was on two sports teams. I got into the college of my choice. And a lot of that was, was thanks to the great support my parents had provided and, and the independence and, and opportunity for me to really find myself and work to build my future. And then I got diagnosed with epilepsy and our relationships changed. Now as a parent, I, I can much better understand their perspective, their perfectly healthy son heading off for college with, with a disease that is hard to control and a disease that had never been a part of a family discussion before. But at the same time, I, I was the 17-year-old. I was the one preparing to be a grown adult and I was the one living with the epilepsy and it, it was my responsibility to determine a plan for how I would live with the epilepsy and, and try to control my seizures. And, and my parents and I fought a lot on that and, and we didn't, we weren't very transparent with each other. And I take a lot of responsibility for what I did and it's taken a while for our relationships to have that transparency and just consistent communication that, that we had pre-diagnosis, but you know, through the process, they've never stopped supporting me endlessly and tirelessly. And, and time and time again, after um, seizures or tests, they, they've always been the first there to me. And, you know, time and conversations, they take care of things. And then specifically at the end, end of the day, they, they did begin to listen to, and my brother and my wife really lived through understanding what an epileptic opportunity is. And my main thought behind that is the only person who can truly understand what is going on is the person who has the seizures. And the only person that can decide what is a comfortable approach, what is the least stress-filled, what is the best well-rounded approach is that person dealing with the battle. And my brother and my wife were, were quick to adjust to that viewpoint and perspective. And, and my, my parents, it took them a little bit longer. And as mentioned earlier, as a parent, I can understand you. I, when I see my son stumble on a rug carpet, I try to jump out there and catch him. So I can understand how difficult it is for a parent to not do everything possible to put that protective shield and bubble out there for your child. But if you empower them, if you let them lead the way, they'll invite you closer, they'll be more transparent, and there is more opportunity for unity in the journey and battle that is epilepsy. And I can't encourage that enough for everyone involved. Be transparent, be a team, and let that person who's most involved in the battle, the person who's going through the seizures who has to put on the EEG hat or sit in an MRI barrel or any of that fun. Let that person lead the way because they know what they're experiencing best. Maybe they're not the doctor and they don't know everything that you might know, but if you let them tell you what they need and what they feel, that is the way to make sure that you are a team and that they feel comfortable and there's never a lack of information throughout the family and, and, and the process. This podcast is part of the Tremula Network, adventure and outdoor podcasts off the beaten track. To find out more, head to tremula.network.